Hello and welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fiction podcast where we delve into the nitty-gritty of history, fiction and everything in between. I'm Lachlan and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Tess and Hilary. Hey guys. Hello. Hello. And so our Halloween month is all over, which means we're back onto the non-spooky books. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, which has also recently been adapted into a TV show uh, starring Ethan Hawke. But first of all, uh, how are you both doing? I know we're all busy at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. First week of November, what a ride for everyone, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second and third and Yes, and now everything else coming. (laughs) November is a rubbish time of semester for academics, so Mm -hmm. we're all all marking. (laughs) We're all trying to get, like, drafts on. It's just a bit of a a palaver, I'd say. Yeah. But other than that, feeling a bit okay. Okay, I guess. Yeah. 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 I think that sums it up, really. It's a bit of a, uh, yeah, time of year, is it? Yeah. 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 So I realised we didn't ask Lockie how he is. Oh, yeah, that probably <laughs> so is no, I'm fine as well. You too, right? Yeah, similar vibe. <laughs> yeah, same vibe. Very busy. Lots of things to do, but getting getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we might as well just get straight into it today. So yeah. on to the good Lord bird. Lockie, so you've read the book and first things first, did you like? like the book did you like it yeah I did I really enjoyed it um I found it took me like a little while to get into because it's written in kind of quite vernacular sort Mm. of English and very specific to the time and lots of strange idioms and things but once I tuned Mm. myself to that I thought it was really interesting and a really good portrayal of this time in history and these events so I really loved it that's good that's exciting and I think I, Tess might have watched some of the TV series. Yes, I did. And I actually was going to say similar things. So I watched, I mean, I watched the first two episodes and a bit of the third one. And I definitely intend on watching the rest. So it's a six episode miniseries. And it's, I found it fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I actually watched about 20 minutes of the first episode and then went, oh, I should read some of the book first because I do really want to read the book. Um, and so I swapped over. So I'd actually heard the actor doing the narrator's voice and so I think that helped actually me getting into it straight away because I was just reading it in the voice that I just heard in the tv show I I was really enjoying it so far I think it's as much of what I read I went I read what did we say about 80 pages it was the first yeah. six chapters or so of the book um so far and so far it seems like a really um a really good adaptation of the book in terms of the kind of tone and what happens in it so yeah yeah, that's that, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I haven't watched it. I saw the trailers and like, even having seen the trailers, there were lines in the book that came up that was like, oh, that was exactly the same. So I think it is quite close. Yeah. Well, do you want to start off before we kind of get into all of that, giving us a bit of a synopsis of what the book is actually about? <laughs> sure. So uh, it's a fictionalised account of the later years of the abolitionist John Brown set before the American Civil War. And it follows Henry Shackelford or Henrietta or Onion, as he gets called by Brown, (laughs) uh, who is our fictional entry into this story. There's this brief framing narrative at the beginning of the book. I don't know if it happens in the TV series. 
uh, which establishes that this is like a slave narrative that Henry has written later in his life uh, that has then been discovered. So it is in first person, which I know is controversial amongst <laughs> in this crowd, <laughs> amongst the members of this podcast. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of the novel, Henry is enslaved in Kansas territory uh, when John Brown liberates him uh, from his enslaver. Although Henry is actually fairly reluctant about this happening, and while it's happening, Brown comes under the mistaken impression that Henry is a girl because he refers to him as a girl, and Henry's father says is goes to say my Henry ain't a girl, which he hears as Henrietta. Mm. And so he spends the rest of the novel pretending to be Henrietta, basically because it's convenient for him and means he doesn't have to do as much work in this little army he's found himself in. Uh, so the overall novel is quite episodic, uh, following Henry as he travels with John Brown's crew as they wage guerrilla warfare on pro-slavery forces in Kansas and elsewhere. Uh, and through this, he gets to interact with historical figures like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Ultimately, this leads to Onion being involved in Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry in 1859, uh, where Brown took over the national arsenal in an attempt to begin an armed slave insurrection, uh, but where he is ultimately captured and executed. And it's basically the overall arc of the story. So quite a few elements of that are actual history, aren't they? Like the, the kind of vague elements of Brown's life. Some of those yeah. events are, they're real, right? Oh yeah, and I'll talk about it a bit later, but I <laughs> okay, was surprised cool. by like how, because I, I know a little bit about Brown, but not a lot. So there are some times where I was like, I wonder if that actually happened. And I was surprised mm. by actually how good it was and how often it was reflecting real life events. Yeah. Mm. Billy Hughes seems quite close to what he got up to. The TV show does not start with the the letter, the kind of, uh, or not, it's not a letter, it's a news it's article a about news the article, discovery. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't start with that. It starts with, it says, all of this is true. Most of this happened. As like a little kind <laughs> like of that. on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I like um, that. And then it starts with the hanging of, hanging? Mm-hmm. Execution of Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's hanged, I think. He's hanged, I think. Yeah, cool. And it is from the perspective of Henry and it kind of has, like, there's a sepia photo, but it doesn't quite, it doesn't actually talk about the, like, finding the records. It goes straight into being from his voice. Right. It doesn't, yeah. So it kind of situates it as though it is that, it's an account of the stories, which sort of makes you already be like, okay, well, it's it's the perspective, you know, like, you (laughs) kind of get that, but it doesn't give you that context of, like, oh, this is a historical record that was found, blah, 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 you know. Um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a, like you're at the execution. It's like, well, how did we end up here? That kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much <laughs> record scratch. <laughs> and then it goes to the the scene that the book starts with as well at the um, at that I want to say tavern in yeah. whatever we call it. Um, what's the? It's a tavern, I think. Is what they call it. I think saloon. I was like, yes. that's the like yeah, a yeah. Wild West yeah. kind of word, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and kind of it's, it goes into that scene where he liberates Onion, Henry. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they really just call him Onion in the show, and that's most like you don't really hear his, his real name, except when he says it himself at the very start. So like, <laughs> Yeah, that was even writing this, like writing out the summary, I was like, do I call him Henry? Bad. Because I kind of <laughs> forgot that that's his name. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. They call him The Onion sometimes too. Like, it'll be like, what about the onion? Oh, like, letter. Yeah. The onion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. 
You say this is set before the Civil War. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this period in American history? Because I guess we've covered a little bit in Homegoing episode that we covered, like, Mm. when I did. And a little bit in, I think, the Red Dead Redemption episode we did with Tom McKay. But yeah, did you want to delve a little bit into it? Yeah, I thought I'd just say a little bit about it. Because it's not a very well-known part, especially in Australia, I'd say, this kind of era leading up to the Civil War. People don't know a lot about it. And so this is happening... Uh, the novel is set during something called Bleeding Kansas, which is when Kansas territory was being organised into states and the compromise that was come to, because the big issue back then was obviously if a new state is admitted, is it going to be a slave state or a free state? Mm. And the compromise they come to is that Kansas territory will be split into two states, which is Nebraska and Kansas, and the citizens of each will get to vote on whether their constitution allows slavery within that state. And so... (laughs) It's less of an issue in Nebraska, which is like colder and not as good for slavery. But in Kansas, it becomes this like microcosm of this entire problem in American society of like whether slavery should be allowed or not. And so pro-slave forces come up from Missouri and other southern states, try to affect the vote and like stop people from voting against slavery. Abolitionists in the North respond, respond. they start arming people sending them down to Kansas as well, and it just turns into a total shit show (laughs) (laughs) with everyone Mm. fighting each other. And it very much is like just an early, an early kind of prototype. That's not really the right word. Precursor. (laughs) Precursor, that's the word. I'm the word guy today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an early precursor to the Civil War, but just a lot more concentrated within this area. Um, Oh, wow. So that's something I was wondering about in watching it in particular is you sort of, you get this sense that they're like good guys and they're the kind of like wholesome, like there's moments in the camp where it's actually just like very wholesome. Um, but they're very like the abolitionists being this kind of like John Brown's group being yeah. like, you want to support them. Like that's the side obviously that we want to be on, right? Anti-slavery. But then in watching it, the way that they go about it is there's just no sense of organization and no sense the impact on the lives of the slaves that they liberate right like the mm. fact that you know like what what can onion then do like makes him a fugitive so i was wondering how it is that the kind of chaos that was happening in that period was that really like it was a lot of this kind of not unorganized but very like chaotic kind of outside of the law sense of because i feel like my image of abolition like politics is much more uh, yeah. probably an accurate sense of like like giving speeches. Richer people and... giving speeches, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's very, that's sort of like... You know, handing out pamphlets, you late, know. <laughs> the late 18th century sort of British version of abolition, mm. really. Like, yeah. yeah. I really yeah. don't know much about how that happened in America, I guess. Yeah. It's a big part of abolition in America in this period mm-hmm. as well. Like, it's very okay. centred in, you know, Boston and Philadelphia. Yeah, and yeah, okay. Going around. But there's this division within abolitionists, like John Brown is a very mm-hmm. radical abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And so he is obviously not opposed to using violence to <laughs> get his point across and going out. And yeah, there's, there's divisions within as to whether that's appropriate or not, but there is a lot of sort of money going into this fight in Kansas. And I, yeah, I'm not totally, like I'm definitely not an expert on it. (laughs) So I don't know how disorganised it was, but I get the impression it was pretty disorganised. Like these are Mm. kind of individual bands of like mercenaries almost that are like Mm. funded, but 
there's yeah. not necessarily an overarching kind of strategy going on there. It's just people fighting against each other. And yeah. Cause that, cause that definitely comes across <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in terms of like how it's depicting this period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like, so the, the novel, and I'm guessing the TV show starts when Onion joins up with them. They're about mm. to commit the Potawatomi massacre. I think I'm saying that properly, which mm. is when they find a group of pro-slavers and hack them to death with swords, um, which are quite possibly not the actual people they were looking for mm. in the book. And I think that might be true of real life as well. They kind of get the wrong people. Yeah. So yeah, it is quite chaotic. <laughs> they kill a bunch of people in looking for the guy that owned the yeah, like Dutch tavern Henry. or whatever, the Dutch Henry, that's his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you don't actually, I feel like you don't actually see a lot of that in, you, you see them depict like a decapitate one guy, but you right. don't get a sense that it's a big massacre as such because it's from Henry's perspective and Henry runs away. Runs off. One very yeah. graphic decapitation. Right, I think they killed several people. I don't know. Yeah, like, that's, I don't think that's, that's not, not like, very conveyed, huge, but... Mm. It's, it wasn't like, you know, dozens of people. <laughs> it, was, it was a group, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, mm. And they, that was one of the things I looked up because I wasn't sure if Dutch Henry was a real person. It turns out he was, and that he was what Brown mm. was looking for. And so mm. that was surprising to me because, like, even a lot of the minor characters in this are actually genuine people that... He's looked up and played those roles in real oh, life. So it's like pretty well researched and yeah, that's what yeah. It came across to me. Except for one thing, I'll get to that later. <laughs> there was one. Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's something that I think is interesting about maybe more about the show, but I think kind of about the book too. In terms of that, those like historical events and characters, is you sort of it, it feels like it has more of that sense of like at the time you don't know that something is a historical like event. You don't know that something's going to get a name like that. Mm. like a massacre mm. like all these things are just sort of happening as things these people are doing in their lives and then it's in looking back that we give these like titles and, and events and we kind of have these markers you know what I mean like it didn't come across to yeah. me like oh that's that famous event but mm -hmm. it is like I think that's interesting yeah I think you're right because they yeah. never like say oh we're going to go commit to the Potawatomi massacre yeah exactly <laughs> I don't think <laughs> they even go. But it, but it but it still kind of tells you that history that's interesting yeah I like that. Anyway, is it, well, I guess the other thing we, we like to kind of know about is the reception. Like, is it, was it, is it well received? Mine has a, a gold symbol on the front of the book. So I assume yes. so. <laughs> so it must be <laughs> but, good. Um, yeah, it must, must be good. good, right? Yeah, well, so do you want to talk about that for a bit? <laughs> yeah, so that gold symbol is the National Book Award. <laughs> the National Book Award for Fiction, which it won in 2013, mm -hmm. which I mm -hmm. understand is a fairly prestigious award in the US. Mm -hmm. I should talk about um, as well, James McBride is the author yes. um, and he's written a number of books. I think they've all been pretty well received, although I haven't um, read any others. I think some of them uh, are maybe more memoir types as well. Okay, so I was going to ask, like a number of historical fiction or? <laughs> yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but his background is actually, okay. he's a jazz musician. He looks so familiar. <laughs> yeah, I did. Sorry, he just, <laughs> I've seen him somewhere. Huh. Yeah. I, I got that impression from him as well. And then I did see him pop up. I was like on the Library of Congress's website and they had like a picture of all these authors and I noticed him on there. So maybe he's been on, I don't mm. know, other things. Yeah, but, he's a saxophonist. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And I feel like you kind of get the jazz influence <laughs> from this novel a bit. It's fairly loose and like yeah, yeah riffing on history <laughs> a bit. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. Um, and actually <laughs> it's been that. compared... 
I've seen a few reviews that compared it to Huckleberry Finn and like um, mm-hmm. Mark Twain, although I have to come clean here and say I've never actually read any Mark Twain or Huckleberry Finn, so I don't know how <laughs> accurate <laughs> that is. I feel is. like a lot of books in American literature get compared mm. to the great American literature. I was going to say. Without it like yeah. warranting it to yeah. be honest yeah or it just feels like it does feel it's very american book so it's sort of like in terms of like the culture that is you know and the way it's like the tone and it's written in and everything is very deliberately trying to be like american in a particular way so i suppose mm. it's maybe in that way it would be similar anyway like it's sort of worth comparing to kind of the classic american text you know yeah what is the plot of Huckleberry Finn again? No, I'm confusing it with Tom Sawyer as well. I see. I always confuse it too as well. Yeah. Let me I can never quite remember yeah, which one is which. The only one that I miss. Fence. It is. It's by Mark Twain though, isn't it? Yeah, it is by Mark Twain. Yeah. Okay. You said Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain and I was like, oh no, are they separate? <laughs> no, 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 no. I said Tom Sawyer. I said. Oh, sorry. Because wow. I get the confused because Tom Sawyer is the yeah. one where they get on the raft, right? And they're like. No. That's Huckleberry Finn, where he escapes with the slave. And they, they're like, okay. they go on the river. That's Huckleberry Finn, I think. It is, it is, it is. I'm sure it is. Okay. I read it in high school. Well, no, you've read it, so we have to. I'm, I'm looking at the certain. Wikipedia and it's all oh, okay. It's like super. So I'm oh, it's Google a direct it sequel to The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So that's why. Yeah, they are related, like yeah. The same yeah. kind of book. Anyway. In Missouri, during the 1840s, young Huck Finn, fearful of his drunken father and yearning for adventure, leaves his foster family and joins with a runaway slave, Jim, in a voyage down the Mississippi River towards free slavery. Slavery free states. Okay, I'm right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Am I remembering the wrong thing? No, we're good. See, I mainly know that from the Simpsons, like, send-up of it and stuff. I was going to say, I feel like every kind of American book that's great after the Mark Twain is going to be compared to some kind of Mark Twain mm. or John yeah. Faulkner or not John Faulkner, I mean, William the, Faulkner or something like that. Like kind of slavery theme as well as a main kind of point. Like yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> and Back to this book. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that comes up in like a lot of the reviews is how kind of irreverent this book is compared to a lot of other historical fiction. Like it kind of doesn't treat John Brown in a, in that kind of uh, respectful way that some historical fiction maybe, or like likes to talk up its historical characters. Mm. Uh, it very like clearly portrays him as crazy, like good hearted, <laughs> but quite crazy. Mm. <laughs> um, and the same with like Frederick Douglass, um, which you probably didn't get up to in the TV series. He's only, he's only in there briefly um, towards the middle, but he's <laughs> characterised really as a bit of like a pants man and he kind of <laughs> comes on a lot to Henrietta and is trying to like oh. get her drunk and things like that in her office and it's not, mm-hmm. not a very appropriate relationship. He's living with like two wives. Um, oh, okay. Which <laughs> I think an embellishment of what actually happened, but he, uh, I think... To some extent, Frederick Douglass did have a bit of a reputation for getting around. <laughs> the phrase pants man. <laughs> pants man. <laughs> I love the phrase pants man. Bit of a pants man. <laughs> Very old fashioned. <laughs> it is. I love it. Not that I like pants men, you know. <laughs> no. Just, a, just, just the phrase. <laughs> but yeah, I looked up one of the, because um, it depicts him as living with two women. I think one is African-American, the other is German, and they're both kind of his wives. Mm. Um, and the German woman who was 
who they say is his wife, was someone he's rumoured to have, an, have had an affair with. Oh, okay. Um, oh. And she was a German abolitionist. I think she went back to Germany and apparently, because Frederick Douglass later remarried when his first wife died, when she found out about that, she took cyanide <gasps> or something like that. So oh. a lot of drama there. And so that's dramatic. what playing on. Yeah. Oh my but it's God. really good. I think it gives a more well-rounded depiction even if mm. it is kind of making fun of these historical characters, it actually makes them seem more like people and is perhaps truer than these really sort of staid and mm. quite plain depictions that you can get often. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I was just thinking as you're saying that, is the book kind of very, obviously it's first person you said, but is it quite, it sounds like he's kind of tried to make well-rounded female characters within the book as well, because it's obviously a very masculine setting. But has he attempted to actually, like, give the female characters a bit more agency and a bit more... Uh, there's not a stuff? lot of female. There's not many. <laughs> there are At later. the beginning, anyway. Mm. I will say that the one character that pops up, like, historical character that he really doesn't make fun of and does seem, like, a very respectful of and just depicts her as a total badass is Harriet Tubman. I was going to mm. ask that, yes. So she yeah. comes along later and everyone's just kind of in awe of her in the book and okay, there's no cool. real joke there and everyone just thinks she's... Good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We but should do the sick... recent biopic as a bonus episode sometime, I think. Oh, yeah. That would be fun. That. No, I haven't either, but apparently it's quite good. Anyway, sorry, continue. There's a section in the middle where Onion is separated from John Brown. He spends time in like a brothel in one of these towns. Oh, okay. <laughs> frontier and that's where most of the women characters come into it because he's sort of taken under the wing by one of the prostitutes there and there's also a little slave insurrection that happens which is led by a woman as well who's pretending to be crazy but is actually the mastermind behind this little insurrection okay but the slave woman that he's staying with and is taken under the wing of actually sells out this one who is starting this insurrection so it is complicated like it does have a lot of nuance to that relationship and like who do you blame whether you can really blame her when she's just trying Mm. to get by as well so it doesn't yeah it doesn't put its women characters into these kind of easy boxes yeah yeah is good yeah Yeah. sorry for throwing you under the bus with that question there i was just because yeah it's such a male focused book it's just interesting to hear about how the author's kind of gone about depicting women um i think I think a little bit, I mean, he does that also just through the character of Onion, in a sense, like looking at the way that those kind of gender roles operate and the way mm. that that experience, like, like of, of Henry's experience of the world is so shaped during that by everyone perceiving him as a woman and then, or as a girl, yeah. and then having to perform that kind of gender role and, and stuff. So we see, even though obviously that's not a female character, but we, I think you see a lot of those like interactions and stuff with how that experience of the world is and it almost makes you challenge it more because you see it and you think Mm. well if you knew you wouldn't act that way you know like Mm -hmm. this sort of which is interesting yeah yeah so what about the history then we've touched a little bit about that sort of like what's going on in Kansas at the time but is the book itself a good representation of the period do you feel I think so as someone who has like a passing knowledge of this period it seemed to strike pretty true to me and actually the first time I heard of this book was when the trailer for the tv series came out 
and a lot of historians on Twitter were really excited about it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> like they were really looking forward to it um, because they like the kind of the portrayal of slavery within it and, yeah, the portrayal of John Brown, these other historical characters and how it is really complicated and doesn't give yeah. you this kind of straightforward narrative about them. And so I like it. I like its depiction of slavery and its acknowledgement of the reality of slavery. Like mm. the idea that Henry is reluctant to leave slavery is something you don't see in a lot of things. But like that yeah, that's true. Is a part when you have like families and you know wives and kids maybe that are in slavery with you. You don't want to escape and leave them. And it is a really complicated thing. And I think this book does a really good job of actually gesturing towards that yeah it seems like it also really complicates that idea about escape like it's not it's not that you can like it's not just like a physical restriction in that one place and if you escape physically you're then free like there's yeah. so much more to the way that that society operates and to how every person is going to treat you and blah 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 and like there's the insurrection plot where she she needs papers like that's one of the that's kind of part of that is that she needs mm-hmm. she wants these papers to be forged like all of that kind of complexity to it i think that to me that felt for just from the part that I watched that felt like it captured a lot of that way better than other media that I've seen that tries to kind of deal with this issue Mm. yeah and I think the kind of thesis that ends up running through the book is the fact that you're not ever really free until you can actually be yourself Mm. (laughs) and just like be your authentic person because that's what happens to Henry because he's stuck pretending to be a woman just because that's what John Brown has decided (laughs) that's what he is. (laughs) And Mm. he just doesn't feel like he's in a a position where he can actually go against him, even though John Brown is ostensibly the good guy and Mm. the abolitionist and the person Mm. who wants slaves to be free. He's still in that kind of power relationship where he can be as crazy as he wants to be and no one kind of bats an island at him. And he can be his authentic self, but Henry is still stuck playing these different roles just to try and get by Mm. and i yeah i mean the way the show depicts that as well was interesting in terms of like you you really do feel like as much as like from a separate opinion we know the abolitionists are like the good guys but from what onion goes through from what henry goes through like they're insane Mm. and like going into that environment like you see him being like he doesn't he doesn't want to speak he doesn't like he can't challenge what's going on he's just sort of there being like well i could easily as easily be shot by these people i don't know you kind of get that sense of like you know yeah i I don't know i guess just the chaos but (laughs) i don't know Yeah. yeah how accurate is that like i don't want to say insanity but he's like crazed like is that do we know if that's accurate? Do we have a that's record? that's a really interesting question um, <laughs> because whether you think John Brown was crazy is very much determined about at the time what you thought of slavery and mm. as the years have mm. gone on, like how you how attached culturally you are to the South as opposed to the North. Um, so mm. at the time when it happened, he was obviously you know hanged and seen as a bit of a lunatic. During the Civil War, he becomes this martyr. He's like, mm-hmm. you can see photos of, not photos, paintings of him at the time <laughs> where he's depicted basically as like a saint or as like a Jesus, like sort of placidly going to his execution and things like that. And is seen as like this highly religious figure. Yeah. During Reconstruction and then as you get into the Jim Crow era, he starts to be seen as insane again um, mm. because they want to discredit him essentially Right. Um, believe so strongly in that the races were equal, which obviously is a, is a big issue at that time. And then there's also a divide between like when you get into the civil rights era, the 
you know, that traditional divide between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X of mm-hmm. like, what form should your activism take? Is mm. violence acceptable? Mm. The perceptions of John Brown differ between those two groups as well because he was mm. so violent. Mm. So to the more let's do this through a political process side of things, John Brown continues to be depicted as crazy on the other side, more of a martyr figure again and this hero to the cause. So it's really complicated whether it's crazy or not. <laughs> it's hard to tell yeah. whether that's the case. And I think this one... This book threads a really nice line of like making him obviously like a bit nuts, but also quite idealistic. Mm. And he's not crazy for his reasons for doing things. He's a bit, you know, wild in the way he goes about them, but he knows why he's doing what he's doing. And he has like deep seated opinions on that that don't just come from like random whims of wanting to be violent. (laughs) No. Mm. The show definitely depicted him as well as like very religiously like fanatic mm-hmm. like he was before one of the battles like they're like what's the plan he's like i'm gonna go ask the king and then he goes to pray for a bit and they're all just sort of standing there like there's this sort of sense that like i don't know if that scene's in the book because that's later than where i got up to but there's this sort of, yeah the sense that like some of his fervor i guess came from that like religious belief i don't know if that's mm-hmm. is that I, I think he was a very religious yeah. person yeah okay. yeah Mm. Um, as were like lots of the abolitionists yeah <laughs> there's a i follow ethan Hawke on instagram and he had posted this really gorgeous picture of him and his daughter who's in the show as well uh who people might remember her from stranger things because she's mm. in there as one of the uh <laughs> she's the worker at like the ice cream place or yeah something like i was trying to scoop yeah. Sahoy or something whatever it's called <laughs> um i was trying to remember Oh. Yeah, she's the the lesbian character. <laughs> uh, I love her. <laughs> and she she looks uncannily. She looks uncannily like so much like Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. insane. Like she, if you got their two faces and blended them together, <laughs> I remember we looked it up, and then we were just like, "Holy shit!" She looks exactly like both of them. But anyway, there's this gorgeous photo that he posted of them trying to pick out this Bible verse for the scene that they were recording. So they're both just like crouched over this in costume oh. crouched over this um the bible that they're both looking at it was just like oh that makes me want to watch the show just because it's like a really nice uh family moment to be honest but yeah that kind of like idea that they're kind of trying to pull that religiousness mm-hmm. making efforts to put that within the show even though that might put viewers off it's kind of good to see that they're like making an effort but yeah the aesthetics that- of the show look really good so <laughs> yeah. that immediately made me think i mean the religious kind of perspective on it immediately made me think of the crusades obviously um yeah. it was the there's a, a line at one point where they're called gunfighters of the gospel and i don't know i can't remember if that i can't remember if i read that in the book or not but it was in the show they say that and i was like oh right. oh that immediate like it was really framed in the show at least as this like it's not a mission for like what is the right thing to do in a general sense it's very specifically like this isn't what the lord mm. wants for humanity you're doing something that's like against you know humanity in that sense um Mm. but there's a lot of really interesting medievalisms that crop up (laughs) during that period in america yeah well okay earlier also Lockie, you said there was one event you wanted to talk about Yes. That wasn't right or something. One, uh, this, it's not one event. thing. This, this is, suspense. This is oh, okay. such a, this is such a tiny me. thing. This is such a tiny <laughs> okay. thing, but it came up often throughout it. And it just, yeah. 
uh, every time okay. I was like, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He always mentions when he's talking about the landscape and things like mm-hmm. that, he always mentions boll weevils, which are a little insect that eats cotton. Okay. And boll weevils didn't come to America until like the 1890s. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would not okay. know this. I would not know this except we were talking about in one of my courses this year. We were talking about the Great Migration, which is when lots of African Americans moved from the South up to the cities in the early 20th mm-hmm. century. And one of the big causes behind that is because boll weevils. It's when they've really they haven't been there long, and they suddenly become a plague and mm. eat all the crops mm. and ruin people's livelihoods. And that happens in like the 1920s because they've they only been horrible. there since the 1890s. And it's like, it just, every time it kind of, th- I was like, no, they shouldn't be there. I made a mistake of just why? Googling them. They look horrible. <laughs> why do you think, why make that choice? Does it seem deliberate to use that? Or is that just maybe a term that he's looked up that? I like- think it's a very big part of African-American culture, bowl weevil. Um, especially mm-hmm. jazz and the blues. Like a lot of, you, there are songs that I can mention Bowl weevils. Oh, okay. So I think it's maybe that thing of just like, oh, this is something that kind of happened in the South. They had boll weevils and it was a problem. It's no actual like yeah, research so to, to kind of track it down and when it yeah, started. So it's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting why it's in there. But every time I was like, no, there, there are no boll weevils. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I had no yeah. idea about the sort of significance of the boll weevil within. Oh. I just Googled it. Yeah. Mm. And the first thing that Wikipedia... No, 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 no. But the first (laughs) thing that Wikipedia says is um, it was an American political term used in the mid to late 20th century to describe conservative Southern Democrats. Oh. Oh, That's so interesting. It also became a political term. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I cut you off. I just just read that. That's the first sentence on the Wikipedia, like, as politics thing, as opposed to, like, like, that's what it was used, as opposed to... So it's such a heavy cultural thing. Yeah. 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 Maybe you can can understand why it's in there. Yeah, maybe (laughs) it's not lucky. I honestly, I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't talked about it in class like a week before I read this. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's so funny. But other than that, historically, I think it's really good. (laughs) That's really good. That's really good. We've um, had some very interesting discussions on this podcast. So I'm glad there's one that's actually been like, firmly rooted in history <laughs> and that you I mean, enjoy that, I think, like that's one of the things historical fiction can do quite well is sometimes even when something is a slight pastiche like something's yeah. not necessarily fully accurate to that exact setting but it kind of it can hint towards or like bring in other cultural moments or information mm. that you wouldn't otherwise have understood that is kind of connected to that mm. I don't know I think this was a little bit annoying, but in a way I'm kind of like, you know what? Like sometimes like they do yeah. that this is really common with medieval things where you sort of go, well, all right, that was literally two centuries later um, or something, you know, but it sort of somehow it does kind of create, like it does kind of bring more understanding or more like cultural meaning to a depiction. And I guess like that also ties in with that idea that, you know, a historical fiction author can't do everything that they want yeah. to do and they can't research everything. And so like... They can't look up come, every insect. They yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's something that some people will get that nit- nitpicky about, but they'll be like the soil that they mention is wrong and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, but like... 
the fact that you know he's included it is obviously an indicator of how prevalent it is within his own yeah. like framework of thinking about this history so i think that's really interesting mm. yeah that's so interesting that it brings in that jazz perspective too I, yeah I, I never knew that that's i only just thought of that then but yeah because yeah. one of the one of the blues songs um we listened to in class this year was bob weevil blues which is <laughs> <laughs> I'm by, I love uh, Bessie it. Smith, I think. I think it was the Bessie Smith version. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, recommend that. <laughs> it could be one of our recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> On the note of recommending, <laughs> perhaps uh, not a song, but do you have any actual kind of secondary source information that people can follow up if they want to know more about this period? Yeah, I do. So there's a conversation article that came out when the TV series came out by William Mash, who's a Ooh. professor of American studies at Middlebury College. Uh, which is about what I was talking about earlier, how John Brown has been this floating signifier and how perceptions of him have shifted throughout. So that's a really good, quick, easy read that gives you an idea of that. So I'd highly recommend that. In terms of books, there's a book called The Black Hearts of Men by John Stauffer, which I really like. It's about the relationship between four abolitionists. Um, It's a historical book it's not fiction Mm -hmm. two of which are john brown and frederick Douglass, so we Mm -hmm. know them and also Mm -hmm. garrett smith who was a white landowner who was very wealthy and james mccune smith no relation who was a Mm -hmm. black physician who was trained in like edinburgh but from america and went back there Mm -hmm. and it's going into all their correspondence and how they related to each other Um, it's a really really fascinating book (laughs) love love letter history that's like (laughs) And this one is so good as well. So this is like Stauffer says, the biggest existing trove of cross-racial correspondence in pre-Civil War America, mostly through Garrett Smith. He was like the centre of this web of correspondence. Um, And no one had looked at it. Like no one had looked at all these letters. And he went and looked at it. And it's because Garrett Smith's handwriting sucks. Yeah, of (laughs) course. It's almost indecipherable. And so just no one had bothered... Wow. Um, to read it but he went through it painstakingly and I looked up some of his letters and it is I couldn't make heads or tail of them yeah but he managed to make it work and got a really good book out of it that's so awesome oh love it <laughs> I love letters and like how they yeah. can be as interesting sources that's yeah, what I miss it's... about history <laughs> <laughs> this one's just kind of more tangential but a book that I really like as well it's called Field of Blood by Joanne Freeman it's about violence inside of Congress so I think we can look oh. at like John Brown's mm. violence. It's quite shocking and it was shocking. Mm. But this book really shows like how closely violence was tied with politics in this period. And something that happens at the very beginning of the novel is John Brown hears about the caning of Charles Sumner, which was Charles Sumner was an anti-slavery senator who was beaten almost to death by a pro-slavery senator on the floor of the Senate, uh, which caused a huge uproar, obviously. But yeah, it's a really good depiction of how violence and politics are intertwined when this book is set. So I recommend that. And it's really, this is a strange thing to say, it's really funny at times as well. Like it's kind of a black comedy history book, <laughs> if you can believe it. I think it's sort of similar to how like, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but like there's one parliament in Asia that always gets into like fist fights and things like that. Maybe Taiwan. And they always report on it in the news a bit of, like, oh my God, they've just gotten to a... <laughs> Argy punch on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> That's really fascinating. I just uh, have a quick question about that. How much of that do you know is sort of like common knowledge in America compared to like I we know nothing about all of that stuff here. Like we have 
no mm. sort of grounding knowledge about the fact that this was happening in their like freaking congress yeah. i mean the caning of charles sumner is pretty well known because it's yeah. a big inciting incident um before the civil war but other than that a lot of joanne freeman's book is like having to read through this record these records to find wow. evidence of all the jewels and various things that were happening Jules? so yeah it's so not yeah jewels were still a big Ooh. thing <laughs> Especially for Southerners, because they were all about honour um, and that yeah, kind of oh my God. aristocratic way of doing things. Um, Testio, like medievalism, you should be like antenna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what mine yeah. are doing right now. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, I, I have one final recommendation. <laughs> yes, this isn't a history book. There was some TV miniseries in the eighties or something where, for whatever reason, John Brown was played by Johnny Cash. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> he's only in it for like three minutes and you can find it on YouTube, but I highly recommend okay. Johnny Cash. Oh, <laughs> John so Brown. good. Does he, uh, does he sing a song? Because that's just a waste. He doesn't, unfortunately, but he's got his sort of growly, gravelly voice Hi, on. Very I'm John intense. Brown. <laughs> I believe that's probably exactly a line. Exactly. Yeah, he probably it. said that. Um, in my very quick Google, which involved reading one article, one book <laughs> that I expected you to mention, and so I just mm. was wondering, is there's, there's like a biography about him, right? By David Reynolds, like John Brown, abolitionist, and has a big fancy, the man who killed slavery, by the Civil War and ceded civil rights, right? Have you heard of that? Is that... I, that have, seems I, will, okay. I, I think I have heard of it, but I've not read it myself. I've not read any biographies okay. of him. Um, really, Black Hearts of Men like... was, yeah, like my introduction to John Brown. And that's okay. the most I've kind of read personally. Cool. That's fine then. I was just wondering if that was a like, don't read that. Like you knew of it and didn't recommend it on purpose. Or if that was just, I mean, there's obviously a million books on these things. So I was like, going to say, there must yeah. be a million biographies. It's not that. like, a, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. I was just wondering. Yeah. <laughs> He comes across as one of those like very uh, armchair historian kind of figures from uh, like. Oh, that people would have written, as Ameri- armchair historians would have written about him. Yeah, and yeah. then like. Right, Ameri- I think mean, he was an armchair historian. No, I was no, like, no, no. Uh. no, no, no. He comes across as that sort of figure that Someone armchair that, historians or people who are armchair yeah. historians who would like read all the books it's like, kind of about him, like American dads who were like, yeah, I'm really mm. into this guy. It's <laughs> like if Peter Fitzsimons was American, yes, he would have written a book yeah. about John Brown. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've just got a book about Breaker Morant from him, so he's he's shifting away from colonial stuff <laughs> so after all that those fascinating sources and discussion would you recommend this book i think you i think you're very oh, y- about it yeah yeah 100 <laughs> and i haven't seen the tv series yet but i'm because i didn't want to have it in my mind while i was reading the yeah, book as yeah, well um, but i'm definitely going to run off and watch that as soon as possible it's a pity we weren't a little bit more organized i put that in quotations because like life but it would have been cool to be able to do this and then like do a bonus episode on this series just because i i also didn't get a chance to watch it as well so um it would have been fun but whatever like i definitely recommend watching it though having watched yeah them. yeah it's i think i will good. yeah i think i will I, it was on my list before it even came up on the podcast so i'm looking forward to sitting down and watching it at some stage but yeah that's good um I would, I would say having done like a snippet of both, I probably say read the book first because as soon as I saw, like I was picturing the show in my head as soon as I started mm. reading the book. And I think I would have enjoyed, I think I would have enjoyed the book slightly more or differently if I'd read it before engaging in any part of the show. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I don't know because I haven't fully read either, but like <laughs> that would be my 
thought perhaps. Mm. Did you do okay think... with the first person? Yeah. The... Yeah. That's, I mean, Yay. that's the thing. The thing with first person for me is it's when it's, when it's done terribly. And I think it's very often done terribly mm. um, because it's so hard to capture the voice of someone from the past. And so I just so often feel like, particularly for female protagonists, that the, the actual voice that, you know, that people use for historical fiction stories is mm. just not, it's not, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like you're in that space and it just ruins it for me. Mm. And so, but I, I thought this was done so well. Mm. I mean, I don't know enough about it, but it, it felt like this character is was it, actually kind of speaking and it, it worked in a way that. Is it written sort of like conversationally, like with, you know, abbreviations, like, like yeah, J.K. Rowling writes Hagrid, that kind of thing, or is it written like yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay, that's that's more. I feel like Except better, way better than J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I just couldn't think of another example off the top of my head. I was like, don't do it, um, don't do yeah, it. That don't was do really, that, it definitely. I knew exactly what you meant straight away. Though. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it it manages. But I don't know if you agree, Lucky, but I think it does really well with the balance between writing it in a way that is like accessible and still like well written yeah. and doing mm. that like vernacular kind of um yeah yeah and it's a lot more spoken. like um yeah it's a lot more spoken mm. than uh, sounding than an actual slave narratives from the time are which tend to be a lot more formal oh, that's but it, this is it's a good kind of like a middle ground i think yeah mm. it conveys that context yeah. like someone's telling you the story in a kind of better way i think than the actual sort of formalized narratives would have yeah. yeah for an audience now you know mm. That's good that you recommend it. We've, you know, I think the the scale of recommending is slowly increasing compared to the very. <laughs> we, need, like, we need to make up for it. last month. Yeah. Last month was a was a bad time for historical fiction books. <laughs> All right, before we wrap up and move on and tell you about our next books. Does anyone have any non-historical fiction recommendations from the last few weeks? Hillary? Yeah. <laughs> you <Yes>. do. <laughs> uh, I've been playing um, Horizon Zero Dawn on PS4 and uh, it has changed my life. <laughs> I've never been very good at playing games on the PS4. Like I've played Uncharted 4 and like we was on baby mode and I would still fuck up like shooting at people. So this game has changed my life and the fact that I can now play games and <laughs> I just absolutely love the story and I love everything about it and would recommend that so much if you haven't played it. I know it came out like several years ago. I'm now wearing Aloy merch solely. That's all I wear now. <laughs> but yeah, I totally recommend that. And the second one's coming out next year as well on the PS5. So that's going to be exciting. And we talk a lot a lot about games on this podcast. Um, I think it's scheduled to be released for PS4 as well. Oh, probably. I'm I think they're doing hoping. a crossover. <laughs> yeah. Mm. They're doing a bit of a crossover, like so the recent Spider Man. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think Tess and I are both keen to play and maybe looking the uh, new Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Oh, it came out. I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah, it came out. Um time. It's my reward yeah. to myself when I finish marking. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> I very rarely I feel much more confident going into that having played Horizon Zero Dawn because like I've watched some of the gameplay and it's like almost exactly the same. So I'm just kind of like, oh, I'll be actually able to handle myself in this game rather than, yeah. Mm. 
I was going to say as well, like we do talk a lot about games in this sort of section. And of course, Tess studies games for her PhD. Mm-hmm. So I think we might try and organize in the new year to do like a bit of a game stream. Uh, if we can find a co-op historical game that we can all play on Twitch or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I briefly mentioned that last episode. It wasn't a set in plan. But yeah, we'll mm-hmm. let you guys know about that soon. Does anyone else have any recommendations? I think everyone else has been pretty flat out with everything yeah Yeah. i haven't even started reading the book that i'm going to be doing next which which Which, yes speaking of which you'll be reading (laughs) the pull of the stars right yeah which i said to you guys earlier just sounds like the fault in our stars uh (laughs) it's very strange title but yes i'll be (laughs) i'll be reading this uh the pull of the stars by emma donahue who's a quite a famous uh historical fiction author and also wrote room which she also wrote the screenplay for. And it's set just after the First World War in Ireland and it's dealing with the Spanish flu pandemic, which I thought would be appropriate co- uh, topic to cover at the end of 2020. But <laughs> the thing that fascinates me about this book is that it came out in like March or April or June. So it mm. like kind of timed itself. Like it was kind of an auspicious like timing with the release, which I thought was very funny because obviously she'd been writing this beforehand so yeah yeah, so it just like came out at this time so yeah I'm interested to see how like the depiction of the sort of pandemic compares to what we've all experienced this year I guess Mm. but also next week we're very excited to have special guest Dr Stephanie Russo who's my supervisor but also a senior lecturer at Macquarie Uni um we've got Steph on because she's just released her new book about the literary afterlife of Anne Boleyn Henry VIII's infamous second wife and that's how Steph and I kind of bonded she was working on this (laughs) book and I obviously worked on the Tudors beforehand and we kind of just uh, got on that way so we're going to be chatting all things Anne Boleyn we're going to have a bit of a chat about her book and stuff but she's also going to get us to watch The Spanish Princess with the second season's just come out on Stan um it's a star series so I think we might just watch an episode or two of that just to kind of have a bit of a chat about that so look for that coming out in about a week's time um it's going to be a very exciting episode I'm very excited yeah and until then don't forget to subscribe as always where you find us for your podcast listening follow us on instagram and twitter like us on facebook and if you have any feedback you can find us there or you can email us if you'd like historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com and that's it for this episode thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to delving into more historical fiction next time until then happy reading